young and you're when you're young and uh you know unattached or you know uh loosely attached um that's the time to be really working your ass off and everybody who does music professionally and everyone who does comedy professionally and anyone who acts professionally will tell you the same thing um which is that in order to get where they are they went out there and they failed thousands and thousands and thousands of times before they started succeeding so uh that's and that's the same is true for me the same is true for any comic that i've ever known um or ever heard their story that they you know the story is always the same i lived you know in some comedy city and i went out and did like 10 sets a night for years and for every musician that i know it's i you know from the time i was 14 to the time i was 27 i practiced 10 hours a day um and that's you know that's what it takes that's what it takes to get to like the level of proficiency that you need to get to to be a professional Welcome to another episode of the Marvel's World podcast. Podcast where we speak to scintillating and amazing people. People who help people like you and me make what we love a full-time job. If you like the podcast, give us a review on iTunes and Amazon. Share it with your friends. Uh, five stars mandatory. If you didn't like it, then basically this podcast didn't happen. Uh, today, we have a fantastic musician, a musician that's going to bring heart and soul to your ears. His name is Lucas De Canter, and he's calling all the way from Los Angeles. How are you doing? Um, I don't know if that was an accent or you just added a syllable to my last name, but that's cool. It's just Lucas yeah. Cantor. Um, which is cool, uh, but that's that's what I go by. Uh, Lucas Decanter is um, a name that I was called in college sometimes because there's no really available nicknames for the name Lucas Cantor. Ah, okay. So Lucas Decanter was the best they could come up with, um, which I always kind of regretted as a child, if I'm being honest. I kind of wished I had a cool nickname. Did you have a nickname? I often get called Marv or I get called Wanker. Well, I get called. No, I don't know. Uh, it depends on the. It depends on the. Depends who you're asking. <laughs> yeah, I've never been called a wanker. Actually, I think that's a symptom of living in the United States. <laughs> Different sort of slang terms in the UK and and America, isn't it? Like, we often we often call that for someone who's a complete waste of space. I mean, what's 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 a, what's the American term for? For that. Oh, uh, I don't know. Shithead. We have so many <laughs> of them. It's shithead. We, there's not really an equivalent of wanker because I feel like wanker is also like you would call your friends wankers too, right? Like j jokingly. I guess. I guess motherfucker is probably probably the closest uh, analog. Ah, <laughs> uh, so like the predator thing with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which says, "You are an ugly mother." <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I would also refer to like a really good musician as a motherfucker. I'd be like, oh man, you hear that guy play? Oh, he's a motherfucker. So it's kind of a catch all. And it's 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 amazing like you're like a full time sort of professional sort of musician in a way. 
and that you've gotten into that because I mean with music or anything in entertainment and it is extremely competitive there's all sorts of games that go on all sorts of rubbish and like to sort of rise through that and make what you enjoy doing your full-time thing is an accomplishment in itself yeah I agree I think anyone who is making a living doing their art is is uh is killing it um and you know I used to I remember being in college and people would talk about selling out, you know, and they'd say like, oh man, you know, this musician or that musician sold out. And I would always think, man, these guys are just jealous because they got nothing to sell. <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> if you if you can get paid to do your art, you, sh you should do it. So you're, you're at a level where maybe you're not, you're not sort of, I don't know, Demi Lovato, but you're at a point where you can be happy. Sure. I mean, I make a living doing my thing. I write, um, you know, most of the music that gets written in the world is background music for media um, by a large margin, by about like 10 times more than pop music. For example, a company like APM, which is which I mentioned before, has something like 750,000 tracks in their library. And Beyonce, to this date, has released about 180 tracks. So the amount of music that is, and the Beatles did about 160 in their career. So the amount of music that is made for media is huge. And that means that, uh, you know, Beyonce has probably made more money off of her least popular track than I have made lifetime off of all of my music. But still, I make, um, you know, I'm able to earn enough to support my two kids. And um, my wife is also a composer, so she, she works too. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a lot more... The thing that I was surprised at when I moved to Hollywood is that there is a sort of blue collar route available to artists. And there are a lot of jobs that you can do as a musician that are lucrative and fulfilling and are, um, and are fairly easy to get if you're in the right place to get them. And you know, you're talented and you're willing to work hard, but they're, they're as easy to get as any other good job. And which is to say that they're extremely competitive and rare, but they're available and you can get them. Um, and so that's one of the things I like to talk about is that, you know, if you live in, if you're like a younger person and you're growing up in a small town, it's very easy to think that the only way to be a professional musician is to be, you know, a high school band director or become a really famous artist. And the, that's just not true. There's a lot of room in between those two things. And there's a lot of lucrative careers in between those two things. And like, tell us about how it started. So what city are you from originally? Well, I was born in Boston and I moved to New York when I was nine and I grew up in New York and functionally. And uh, I went to college for jazz performance on the guitar. So the thing I'm really qualified to do is play jazz standards. Um, a thing I don't get to do that much anymore, but then I moved to New York City and I started working for NBC Sports and uh, in their music department. And I worked on, uh, on the sports programming and Olympics with them. And I started thinking, you know, I could make some of the music that they put in these broadcasts. I could, you know, I could make that kind of stuff. And so I started making that kind of stuff and they started putting it in the, in the shows. And I just got more interested in the composing part than in the, um, than in the producing part of uh, like working in television. And I, um, after a few years of that, I just moved out to Los Angeles to try to make a go of it as a composer and kind of had to start over. And I was at that point 30 and I had 
I had accomplished some things in the world of television, but uh, nothing really as a composer. And so I just started as someone's assistant and worked my way up from there. Again, got incredibly lucky on a couple of projects that I got to put my name on. And now I, uh, now I have a you know, bit of a reputation and I've gotten to do some, some cool stuff. Yeah. And so with building this background music, I've seen that on YouTube, there's people that like build the whole, I mean, they just have a channel that's filled with a lot of background music. And with the amount of views they get, I mean, they, they comfortably sort of live off that. Do you also sort of bring that into it as well? I've never thought about putting background music on YouTube, honestly. I, I'm sure some of my music gets used that way. My, my business is, um, like the, that side of my business, the, the library music side of it, is uh, I have a few clients that are high-end libraries and they pay me basically on a per track basis and then I collect royalties once the tracks are uh, available to use. And so, um, so, so that's, that's how that works. I, I, I mean, YouTube, when I was coming up and really sort of, when I was at the point in my career where doing something like that would have made a lot of sense, YouTube didn't really exist, at least not as a, such a powerful, not as the powerful platform that it is today. So I, uh, yeah, that honestly never occurred to me. I didn't know that people were like posting. I didn't know that there were YouTube channels with background music. <laughs> that's a great idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe I, maybe I should do it. I mean, I have a, I, I have a, I have a like, nom. I mean, I have a YouTube channel. I've rarely upload anything to it, um, and I, I think I have you know the subscribers that are members of my family. But um, I do post stuff to Instagram quite a bit. But that's that's mostly just like fun things that I like to do with various instruments that I have. But yeah, most of my most of my work is on uh, professional projects like. Uh, TV shows and films and uh, concerts and that kind of thing. And does it, do you pertain to a certain genre of music or is it just across the board, anything they need? Yeah, I mean, I guess I have a style. I, it's interesting, D different clients think of me as, a, as different, as think of me for different things. So I have some clients that think of me as an orchestral guy and they want my orchestral sound and my, you know, sort of big orchestral ideas. And then I have some clients that think of me as a guitar player and a multi-instrumentalist. And they usually just want me to add something to what they've already written. And I have some clients that think of me as, uh, uh, I've done a, a lot of trailers. So I have some clients that think of me for that. And it's hard to, it's hard to position yourself with, um, with clients as a, as like a multi-genre person because they want they i think they want to feel like what they're hiring you to do is the only thing that you do and i'm happy to let them feel that way it's just you know it's not true of really anyone i mean if you listen to john williams's catalog he does really gigantic epic film scores that we all know he also does these like small intimate jazz scores that he's probably less famous for but you know equally as as talented at and uh you could say the same about any composer, Ludwig Göransson, one of my contemporaries, is uh, you know famous for big the big sort of Marvel score for uh, Black Panther, but he also won a Grammy for a hip hop album, and so he you know he's a multi genre person. But uh, yeah, I wonder I wonder if his clients call him for both. I don't know, maybe they do. But for me, 
I have some people that think of me as one thing and some people that think of me as another thing and I try to just give them what they what they ask for. Would that be necessarily the difference between you and someone like Demi Lovato? Because like Demi Lovato is like an artist and she the singing, she does it in a certain way. You you sort of dip your toe in so many different different fields of music to a point you understand it, but you don't go as maybe in depth as someone like her would be in her genre. Sure, I mean there are uh, there are a lot of differences between me and Demi Lovato. <laughs> um, she has a audience, <laughs> you know. She she is a um, a you know young uh, singer. First of all, um, I, I don't know if she plays instruments. She probably does. She has an audience, um, you know, which is about the, the size of the city that I live in, uh, probably larger, honestly. Um, and so, uh, you know, her, and, and I think that she probably, I'm speculating and I don't know her and I don't really know her music that well, but she probably has ideas about expanding to different genres and so on, but she has such a established fan base that wants to hear what she does that to some degree, she's probably got to cater that, to that. I mean, if she woke up tomorrow morning and decided she wanted to do a, like an EDM album where she didn't sing, but she just produced some like really hard hitting electronic music. I don't know if that would, I don't know if that would go over well with her fan base. Whereas I have, um, you know, my job is to produce the style of music that is appropriate for the moment, especially when you're doing a film. So, um, so yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm, I can produce something that sounds like a pop song, but certainly Demi Lovato can produce a pop song that sounds more authentic. And more to the point, only Demi Lovato can make a Demi Lovato song. I can make something that sounds kind of like a Demi Lovato song, but only she can make something that is authentic and really, you know, works and really is, uh, is hers. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Sort of. It's, I get it. I get it. I get it. It's, 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 but because it's her, she's her own artist. You you just get to the point of things, and like basically, you don't go as basically in depth into certain things as as a, a performing artist like her would do. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that there's, um, yeah, I, I think her the, the level there are there are there are only hmm, I'm a little tongue tied here, so. I would say that I have achieved a, a level of mastery in uh, jazz music and also in classical music, not um, not performing it, but in uh, in writing it. And other genres are, um, I, I sort of interpret them through those lenses, if that makes sense. So uh, I can I can make music that will like read to you as any style of music. But uh, I guess another, I mean, to put it another way, maybe like Aaron Sorkin, the brilliant television writer and playwright, uh, writes, you know, some of the best dialogue you can think of, you know, Social Network, The West Wing, all these great properties, but he's probably not a great poet, but he probably is like a pretty good poet. You know, he could probably write a poem that you would say, oh, well, that's a poem. And I feel like that's, that's sort of what my job is, that there are some things that I do very, very well, and then anything in the world of music I can do passably well at, at the very least how, how many sort of genres of music do you have to understand to do your job i mean and how many sort of music genres are there there must be maybe a thousand or something like that 
Yeah, I don't I don't know how many there are. I, I don't know if I mean, and genre is also a pretty fluid category, right? Uh, it's a pretty fluid concept. It's um, a little bit there. There are certainly academics who specialize in musical taxonomy and figuring out what is salsa music versus what is merengue music. But uh, most audiences also are not that specific. They, if you, if you listen to, um, well, I'll tell you. Uh, so I'm I'm Puerto Rican, and uh, on Cinco de Mayo, I was in a grocery store, and they were playing. Uh, some music by Eddie Palmieri and uh, El Gran Combo de Puerto Rico, which is like, you know, the Puerto Rican national band, basically. They're one of the more famous artists that came out of Puerto Rico and every Puerto Rican knows their music. And so I'm listening to this stuff and, it, you know, it's salsa music. It's, you know, brass and timbales and that kind of thing. And I, I just asked someone who worked there, I said, hey, why are, you know, I didn't realize it was, I didn't realize what day it was. I said, why are you playing this music today? You know, usually it's just kind of, you know, Stevie Wonder or whatever. And she goes, oh, it's Cinco de Mayo. And I just thought to myself, well, that's a Mexican yeah. holiday. This is Puerto Rican music. Like the, these two things are not related really at all in the minds of someone who's a musician and from Puerto Rico, but to a casual audience, it sounds vaguely south of the Texas border. And that's all that it needs to sound like. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that is what your job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I try to get like, I try to get as specific as possible with, you know, if I'm, if I'm writing music for a character that is in Venezuela, I will probably use a Venezuelan charango and uh, you know some of those maracas and try to use a harp um, because I know that music and there's you know there's specific music that is specifically cultural to every country basically and to every region as well. So I'll try to get as specific as possible, but sometimes all the client wants is just the sound of you know something Latin or the sound of something from uh, like. If you've ever watched any film or any television show, whenever they go to the Middle East, you hear a you hear a daduk, which is a Middle Eastern instrument that is um, that has just become a a trope in uh, in film and television, uh, a cliche, really. You know, the same way that when you go to London in in a film, you hear just very grand, eloquent um, pop music or, or uh, pop music, classical music, or um, maybe depending on the time period, you'll hear some punk music um, or you'll hear the Beatles. But there are certain sounds that are associated with uh, the UK, right? I, I found that the, that the highest, the, the sort of the, the most famous people that I know and the most high performing people that I work with are also generally the nicest. I think yeah, because they're more emphatic and they can see things from the other side. But I think... No, I, I don't think so. I, so I, I think that like, it's a, it's a misconception to think that because someone is successful, they're nice and they're and they treat people with respect. I think that they treat people with respect and that is why they've gotten to where they've gotten. I think that's a big reason because I don't think that, um, you know, if, and, and I know some, uh, I know some artists that have like come up where I, like I've known them since they were, since they were unknown. And now they're, they, they have a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a following and like they they were they, they are who they who they are you, you don't you don't cut throats and step on people to get at the top and then all of a sudden become really nice you know like if, if that's who you are that's who you are and so i think the um i think it's the opposite i think the people who are uh who are good and consistent and treat people with respect are the people who rise to the top okay.
in the entertainment industry anyway. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's been my observation. One of the things is in in the industry that you're involved in, it is involved in music, but it's based on actually something that you stumbled across, and it's more so like you do it because you enjoy doing it rather than. But in music, acting, and comedy, there's because you're on the front of the face. There's a bit of egomania that goes on. You're going in for that rather than doing it because you like it or not, or whether it's for you. I think maybe that should be shown sure. more in performing arts because maybe they're more suited behind the camera. You don't have to be in the front all the time. I think I can, I mean, the only thing I can say to that is my own experience of, because I've done some speaking, and you know, I do some things where I'm in front of the camera or on the stage and there is a different, it's a different pressure when you're doing that kind of job um, and it's a different pressure to like especially the day of or when you're in the moment because you're creating something that's going to last for a long time and there's just a lot of pressure and so when things go wrong that are beyond your control I think it's natural to be frustrated and I've definitely had even on I think I'm generally considered to be an easy person to work with but I've certainly had diva moments when I've been on a stage or you know in front of an audience and something has not gone the way that I wanted it to backstage I mean, I've never screamed at anyone or, you know, been a tyrant, but I've definitely, um, I've definitely behaved in a way that I later had to apologize for, <laughs> um, you know, and I think that everybody who's in that kind of job does that. I, I, I don't feel, I don't feel that pressure when I'm writing music, like on a film or anything like that, because there's just, there's more time and you're not, you're not often under, you're not on, uh, often under that kind of time pressure where, something has to happen right now and that's how it has to be. Um, when I, by the, and by the time I get into a recording session with an orchestra or something, everything is so prepared that it's, it usually goes over pretty well um, and pretty easily. But, uh, but yeah, I think that there's, I, I, I personally, when I'm, when I see performers and they're like, and they're um, in the midst of performance and they're maybe not as polite as they could be, I, I usually just give them a pass and just assume, you know, this is their process because almost always afterwards or uh, beforehand, they're, they're nice and cool. And sometimes people get nervous and everyone vents that kind of frustration and nerves in a different way. <laughs> if you, um, I, I can think of the last, I did a, a TEDx talk in um, October and it was doing that kind of thing where you're just doing a speech for eight minutes that you know is recorded is intense and uh it's not something i'm used to and it also had been a while since i'd been on a stage because there's been a global pandemic so i got to the stage everything was cool everybody was really nice we spent the whole day there everything was great the crew was amazing you know everything went over perfectly and then we did a live stream and i realized that the way that they had shot the video was just like a little bit different than the way that i had imagined that they were going to shoot it and i talked to the producer about it and I, you know, I asked her to, I asked her if it was possible to change. And I was like, yeah, this is, you know, this is pretty important. And I think I was cool about it, but it also, I was talking to her about it at a time when she was really busy doing something else. And so I think she got a little bit frustrated because I was basically bothering her with something that probably could have waited till later. And, um, and afterwards I like, and, and I kind of realized that, but kept talking to her. And afterwards, and so that, to me, that was a mistake because I like slowed someone down from doing something and made a, you know, probably a negative impression on her during the course of an event that was overwhelmingly positive. And so afterwards, after the dust had settled and we were all, you know, out after the event, having some beers, 
I just apologized to her and I said, you know, I'm sorry, you know, it was a high pressure day for everyone. And that was my diva moment. And I'm sorry that you had to be the person that I vented that frustration to and everything's cool. And I, th I think we're cool now. I think it was fine. And she's, uh, this particular producer is someone who has worked on a lot of shows. So she's certainly seen worse. Um, but I think that the, you know, you just try to be a decent person. If you offend a friend of yours, what do you okay. do? You just, you sincerely apologize. And that's, that's the only thing you can do. I mean, obviously it's better to try my, what I, what I try to do, like what I try to live by, and this is the code that I sort of broke on this day during the Ted talk. But what I try to live by is, you know, when you're producing something, when you're in a show, when you're in the moment, you, you really only need to be talking to your colleagues about things that are essential and time sensitive. Um, unless you're, you know, relaxing, but if you're giving them a task, it has to be something that has to be done right now because everything else is essential and time sensitive. And when I, whenever I've broken that rule, either intentionally or by accident, it's always led to chaos and I've always regretted it. So I try to just, before I talk to someone, especially if I'm frustrated, I just try to think about like, is this something that has to be addressed right now? And if the answer is no, then I usually will just sit on it and nine times out of 10, the problem just goes away. Um, but if it is like, you know, I don't have a microphone on and I'm going on stage in two minutes, then yes, you got to tell someone that. Um, but, but yeah, that's so. Yeah, I've certainly, I've done enough productions that I've certainly um, had some moments where I've, uh, where I've been, you know, a less than perfect collaborator and I've worked with people that have exploded on me and melted down and, um, at the end of the day, you just apologize and move on. And I, you know, I usually give, I, I personally give everybody like one freebie, you know, that like kind of no matter what it is, if nobody got hurt, I'm happy to just forget about one time when something went really, really badly. If it becomes a pattern, then you have to address it, obviously. Like you hear a lot of stories on, like, in interviews, like on TV with celeb celebrities where they talk about a fan, like you don't know, pretending they know him because they've seen him on TV. And then asking them inappropriate questions at the wrong time. Like asking for. Sorry, I'm just gonna. <coughs> I remember, I think one of the celebrities I was thinking about, I think Kevin Hart said someone went over, he was in the toilet, and someone asked to take a selfie with him. But he's in he's in the toilet having a piss. So like <laughs> could you just Yeah, I I mean, I think that if someone asked I mean, if someone, I mean, just think about, put yourself in that situation. If you were in the toilet having a piss and someone asked if they could take a selfie with you, you would probably not be so nice, you know, like telling them to fuck off would not be inappropriate in that situation, right? Um, you know, if, uh, and so I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I don't, again, I don't know Ellen at all and I um, don't know the stories you're referring to, but, um, but my guess is that, it's a, uh, you know, anybody can be anybody who's public like that. Like, I mean, Ellen can't go anywhere really where she's not known, at least in the United States. You know, she's been, she's been on TV every day for a, a long time. And so that's a, anonymity is something that, um, that a lot of people take for granted and they don't realize how precious it, how precious it is until, it's gone. Um, and this is just me trying to get into Alan's head. I, I don't, I don't have this problem. I can walk into the supermarket and nobody cares. <laughs> but, uh, but I've been, when, when I do concerts, there, there is, 
something really intense about people's, um, uh, especially if I like, I, I like to stay after and talk to people when I do concerts and there is something really intense about people wanting your attention that much. And for me, it's perfectly fine. And it's even uh, fun for me because it's only every once in a while. But if that were your everyday life, I could see how sometimes you just want to go to a restaurant and have dinner with your family and you don't want to take a selfie with someone. And if that person, you know, if that person is the 15th person to try to interrupt your dinner to take a selfie, you might snap at them, even though they were being kind of reasonable and trying to be polite. And then you can get a reputation for being. Yeah. Rude. And the, the thing is, yeah. Oh my, yeah. That's. You mentally must do them over. And that's why, that's why you hear so many celebrities being hooked and all these drugs and all these different things, because it must get mad. Yeah, probably. I, uh, I don't have. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of different ways to cope with uh, everyone copes with that kind of stress differently. But there, yeah, it is stress. I mean, you know, you're, I think Dave Chappelle said um, that one of the reasons he left Chappelle's show, I think he said this in a special, was that, um, you know, they gave him like a hundred million dollars. So on top of, which is great, and every, you know, instinctively you're like, well, that would be nice, wouldn't it, to get a hundred million dollars? But it's like, from his perspective, he said, you know, I was already a young guy running a show that was a big hit show. And then all of a sudden, hey, guess what? You're also the CEO of a hundred million dollar company now. You know, because a hundred million, you, you don't just put a hundred million dollars in your checking account. Like you got to deal with that money. And that requires decisions and people and all that kind of stuff. And so that was just too much pressure for him. And I, I you know, on the one hand, I think as a as a person who doesn't have a hundred million dollars, I, I sort of think, well, that's kind of, you know, what a spoiled brat. But on the other hand, like, I don't know what that's like. And it's probably pretty intense. And Dave Chappelle is like, not a weak or unintelligent person. So like, he obviously had very clear and well thought out reasons for doing what he did, you know? Uh, and I don't know how I would react in that situation because nobody has ever handed me a hundred million dollars. But I probably would react exactly the same way he did, frankly. Isn't, isn't it mad how a lot of us was, you know, you hear something in a newspaper like, oh, this guy got got threatened by this. There's a common, there was a thing in the boxing in a couple of weeks ago. There was two heavyweight boxers fighting and a lot of boxers criticised this other guy for quitting. But the thing is, this other guy was getting punched in the eye a lot and he had massive swelling. And now he's, he's, he's having an eye operation, which means that he isn't going to be able to box for about six or eight months. But he, he, he went down and he quit. We were criticizing for doing that. But if he didn't quit, then he may lose his eyesight. So, like, he, he, he should, yeah, he did the right thing of quitting. Why would you, you don't need to risk your entire eye just for that. Like, oh, now he's brave and he's a tough man because he didn't quit, but he's blind. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's. Uh, but what if he had not quit and went blind and won the fight? Then he'd be a legend. Yeah, but it's it's still it's a bit. You know, is it worth it? I mean, yeah. And I, I... it's like you don't like. So I, I know baseball is not popular in the UK, but uh, there's a. Um, uh, I live in Los Angeles, and Kirk Gibson was one of the most famous Dodgers back in the 1980s, and he was injured. Uh, like and couldn't really even run but they 
had him play in this one pivotal play in the World Series in, uh, I think, 1988. And he hit a home run, you know, but he hurt himself because, but, but, but everybody, you know, had he not, had he decided not to play, probably nobody would have remembered that. Had he gone up and not done anything, probably no one would have remembered that. But because he did it while he was injured, it became a bit of a legend. And, um, you know, again, the story, the, the sports business is also the story business. So what's it like in Los Angeles now? It's just, oh, it happens. Weed. Oh, it's all right. Yeah, we got legal weed. That's, that's, we've had legal weed the whole time I've been here, pretty much. Uh, you can buy weed with a credit card. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just different. It's, uh, it's a bit, everybody in Los Angeles, we have a reputation for being fake nice, but it's not true. We're actually nice because we live in paradise. So, um, you know, that, that day, and I, I don't know if you're in London, but you know, in UK, you know that like couple days a year you have where like the sky is blue, there's no rain and it's like 70 degrees and everyone goes out to the park. That is every single day. That is, that is like 360 days a year in Los Angeles. Sometimes it's a little warm, sometimes it's not, but like living in the environment where the weather is just not really an obstacle to anything, I think makes you a happier person. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> So that, yeah, that's, it's like one problem just completely eliminated from your life. That doesn't mean you don't have other problems, but you have one less. And one of the things you, you were on about before, about like sort of people being nice and all that, one of the things on the flip side of that, like in LA, you must obviously be a fan of Kobe, of the, the Lakers. And of course, like you've got people like Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. Like what? What? Mm-hmm. What I hear about Kobe Bryant was that he, him, and Michael Jordan—they were—they were mental. Like they—they're very vicious, massive ego. But like, God. Well, yeah. I mean, I uh, yeah. Uh, being a professional athlete, how, how do I? So if you, so Marvin, you seem like a pretty nice, down-to-earth dude. Um, let's assume that your comedy career really takes off and you start doing, you know, Jimmy Carr sized shows nightly. Now seeing every day, seeing thousands of people cheer for you for the products of your own imagination, that's got to change you. You know, that's going to make you a little bit, um, uh, a little bit uh, justifiably proud of yourself. You know, I, I think that, I, I don't fault anyone who's in that position for not being down to earth because it is inherently strange to have people treat you in that way. And it's, it's gotta, it's, it's just gotta change who you are and how you think about yourself. It, it's incredible that, that people like him, those, them, are able to stay motivated though. Because when you have that sort of money and that sort of success and you got everything you ever dreamed of, it, how do you keep the fire burning? Well, I think for Michael Jordan, I think the only thing he dreamed of was being the best basketball player of all time. And so when he got close to that dream, he just wanted to push it as far as he could. And even when you are in in sports, even when you are the best at the moment, there's always going to be, there's always the possibility that someone will come along after you and shatter all your records and so on. And so you need to do the best that you can with the time that you have. So I think that, yeah, I, I don't, 
I mean, I guess I can see, like, uh, I want. I mean, maybe it'd be hard to stay motivated after you leave the league, you know. But, but yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't see that. I don't really know what the what your question is. I mean, if you were at the top of your profession, wouldn't you want to keep doing good work? Well, that's what that's what you say, though. Like um, Marvin Hagler used to say that it's very hard to be motivated when you're in silk jeans, like silk um, pajamas. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's yeah. I guess when you're comfortable, it's just a different kind of motivation. I mean, I think about. I try to think about what are the people who. I mean, I don't want to say fans, but like the people who like my music, what, what is it? Like, what is the reason that they like it and how can I give them more of it? Because for me, my, you know, my business is making people who want to listen to my music want to continue to listen to it. And so my motivation is to just try to give them more of what they want. Uh, and I'm, I'm fairly comfortable. I could probably, I could probably take that less seriously, but it's, but it's, you know, I, I enjoy it. I, I like, I like making audiences happy and I like trying new things and, and, I, and I'm fortunate to be in a position where I get to, to do those things. At least I used to get to make audiences happy back when you could go do things in front of audiences. <laughs> um, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that again soon. Now, one thing I want to ask of you is what is your day-to-day -day sort of work routine like? So one of the things I like to ask with like, if they're an actor or if they're a comedian but when you look into the details of what's taking them to the level they're at it's incredibly hard and like people don't often understand the work that goes in now yeah just tell us about how hard it is to do what you love yeah i i mean i have to i have about 20 instruments here uh and i have to like rotate through them and practice them regularly in order to stay proficient and in order to keep them uh working because instruments get, uh, you know, sort of degrade if you don't play them. And uh, the way that Chris Thiele describes it is that they go to sleep. Um, and they, they, it's, it's interesting because the wooden ones especially really sound good the more that they're played. Uh, so I try to rotate through all those. So that, that takes uh, scheduling and, you know, dedication. Uh, I also need to stay physically fit. So I try to do some exercise. I like cycling. I do that quite a bit. And my daily routine really depends on the project. If I don't have an active project, I do uh, paperwork and you know business stuff, and then uh, try to make content for like Instagram. Like I said, I my Instagram is a uh, is just sort of a fun place to watch me play instruments that with really no purpose other than I think it's fun, um, and so that's kind of what I do when I have time off. When when I'm on a project the project really dictates the schedule. So I am the type of person who uh, generally can only work on one thing at a time. Um, so if I have, you know, two things to deliver by the end of this week, I'll usually spend two days on one and then two days on another, rather than trying to juggle them both within the same day. Because it just takes me a while to sort of get my head around what I'm doing. And then once I'm in it, it's a lot easier to sort of flow with what it is. But, uh, but yeah, I don't have like a, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, 10 daily habits. I, I do keep a list of, um, of things that I try to do every day, like exercise. I try to write every day, at least like in a journal or something. And uh, I try to practice every day. Um, and I meditate uh, for 10 minutes every day. And I, I, those are things that I try to do every single day. But outside of that, it really kind of depends on what I'm working on. 
Um, and, and I like to have personally, I like to have blocks of time, like big blocks of time dedicated to creative projects because that's just what my process is. I wish I was one of those people that could be like, all right, I'm going to work on the symphony for an hour. And now I'm going to work on this, uh, you know, uh, essay for an hour. And now I'm going to practice for an hour, but that's just not, not how I work. Okay. And with your sort of career as a whole, what have been the biggest sort of what the fuck moments in a bad way, but what have also been like the biggest what the fuck moments in a good way where you worked really hard on it and you produced like some real great stuff? <laughs> well, let's see, the biggest what the fuck moment in a bad way. Oh man. I mean, Marvin, there've been so many of them. I don't, I don't even know where to start. I, I'll tell, I'll give you one from really, really early in my career, which I mean, I don't even know, know if you can consider this part of my career. But when I was in college, I was in a Doors cover band, like you know the band The Doors and Come On Baby Light My Fire. I was a the guitarist in a Doors cover band, and I, uh, we had a gig at the site of the original Woodstock, which all of this sounded awesome in my mind, right? And they were paying me enough to drive up to Woodstock, which was not that far away from where I lived at the time. And so we went up there, I get up there and it's pouring rain uh, and there's a stage set up, but there's nobody there. Like, the, so the site of the original Woodstock is in a farm it's just, and it's still a farm. And so it's pouring rain and there's a stage and there's nobody there, but there's a couple people in their cars. And I played this gig anyway with this band in the pouring rain to like five people in cars and a field full of cows. And that's, that's it. And so that was a moment where I, I kind of wondered what I was doing with my life. <laughs> if I was headed in the right direction and a bunch of my gear got wet and it was, it was kind of a bad, it's a bad scene. Um, uh, I think the biggest, what the fuck moment in my the positive in my uh, professional life recently was uh, I, I finished Schubert's Unfinished Symphony with artificial intelligence and that project came about and was executed so quickly that I didn't really have time to think about, um, you know, anything other than the music. And we performed it in London. And so we rehearsed it actually at Abbey Road One. And I had a, there's a, this is actually caught on film. <laughs> um, but there was a moment where like, you know, I'd been working on this music and I was pretty sure it was going to be fine, but I had never heard it performed. And I'm sitting there in Abbey Road with the client hoping that they like the symphony that I wrote for them, uh, you know, or that I helped write for them. And when it started playing, I looked at the contractor, who's the guy who fixes the orchestra. Um, and we both just had this moment of relief that it, it all sounded good. <laughs> and uh, there's a photo, I think it's on my Instagram. Uh, my, I, I've mentioned it several times. My Instagram is Lucas D. Cantor. But there's a, there's a photo on there of me looking at him and we both are like laughing at each other. And so that was the... Um, that was a that was a pretty big what the fuck moment. I was, you know, I I had thought I was doing a good job, but I didn't know that it was going to come out as well as it did. And it was, you know, I I did I did nice work, but we also had a great orchestra and a and a great conductor, and um, it's just amazing to see so many talented people come together and bring a project like that to life. <laughs> so you know, when you're young and you're when you're young and uh, you know unattached or you know. Uh, loosely attached um that's the time to be really working your ass off and everybody who does music professionally and everyone who does comedy professionally and anyone who acts professionally will tell you the same thing um which is that in order to get where they are they went out there and they failed 
thousands and thousands and thousands of times before they started succeeding. So uh, that's, and that's the same is true for me. The same is true for any comic that I've ever known um, or ever heard their story that they, you know, the story is always the same. I lived, you know, in some comedy city and I went out and did like 10 sets a night for years. And for every musician that I know, it's, I, you know, from the time I was 14 to the time I was 27, I practiced 10 hours a day. Um, and that's, you know, that's what it takes. That's what it takes to get to like the level of proficiency that you need to get to, to be a professional. Um, and so there's no, you know, there's a, I, I know some people that have gotten uh, really good jobs through like through nepotism frankly but they're also really talented people so they got these jobs you know and like you can like you can nepotism can get you a foot in the door but nobody keeps you around unless you're good so um you know there's there are in, in entertainment and I, I know this is not common wisdom but there are very few examples of people who are terrible and have long and successful careers you know you, you too many people want to do what we do for there to be any room for people who aren't good at it you know pretty much every composer who's working in los angeles is very very good whether or not you love their music is a matter of taste but they're all very very skilled and uh you know the same the same is true of actors you know there are the occasional there's the occasional bad actor and there's the occasional good actor who has a bad day or a bad film but for the most part, people that stay around are really, really good. So, um, and they all put in that time and they, and they continue to put in the time and dedication. Like I said, I'm, you know, I'm uh, 40 now. I still practice. You know, it's not like I got to a point where I was like, all right, I'm good. I don't need to, I don't have to work on this anymore. I still have to practice. I, you know, I, I work on the same things that I worked on when I was, uh, when I was like 18 still, you know, cause I've, I've never really gotten good at them. But you're still getting better at them. Yeah, you still gotta, you just, you know, you've gotta like the fundamentals of whatever your art is, you've just gotta continue to work on them and get them better. And go on and on. And that's the fun of it, really. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Marvin, yeah. I'm gonna have to, uh, I'm gonna have to jump because I got a baby who's gonna wake up. Yes, pretty that's, soon. that's cool. It's funny you said that because. Is that there's only sort of the one sort of question I want to ask now, and thank you very much for coming on. Is um, what life advice would you give to younger self? And the only thing I want to ask you at the end is what are the things you like to plug? What are the things I like to oh, to plug? Um, so, advice to my younger self uh, I would say uh, avoid debt and buy a house as soon as you can. Um, <laughs> So that's, uh, that's probably good advice. That might be easier in the UK than it is here. I don't really know. Uh, and things I want to plug, um, the best way to, so right now I'm working on a book about artificial intelligence and technology. And the best way to support me right at this particular moment is to just follow me on social media, Instagram, Lucas D. Cantor. Um, I don't need your money. I don't have a Patreon. Just follow me and that's it. And uh, I post a bunch of videos of me playing music. So it's, it's, uh, it should be fun. So that's the only thing I, uh, I want to plug at the moment. Um, I've got a lot of music coming out in January, but if you follow me on social media, you'll, uh, you'll hear all about it. Guys, I'm going to plug all his details in the episode. Please follow, follow him. And also, most importantly, also give this episode a five-star review, and I'll see you guys at the next episode. Lucas, it's been a pleasure. You must give it a five-star review. guys. <laughs>